Our Father, we thank you for the great privilege and delight of worship. How different than so many of the pagan and false religions throughout the history of the ages that have a gloominess about them, a vagueness about them, but not us. We serve the living and the true God who has revealed yourself not only on the pages of Scripture through a nation that you formed to be your own and to reveal your will, but ultimately in coming yourself, tabernacling, among us in the person of the Son and the Lord Jesus Christ, who came not only to reveal the Father, but to redeem a people given to Him by You, Father, us in this room this morning who know You. And so we sing with joy. We are, we are a people who rejoice, who have a deep and an inward gratitude to our God, who gather together to remember and the greatness of our salvation and to offer ourselves to you afresh corporately together each week that we come to be with each other and to hear your word, to sing songs, to pray, and to, and to minister and serve your people. Do you pray that in these moments that we have this morning as we remember two of your servants on the pages of Scripture and one of your servants that we have among us this morning, Pastor Reardon and We rejoice with the good gifts that you give to your church and those who serve it well. And so we pray that you would be honored, service to Christ would be honored, and and we pray even in a a unique way this morning that uh, Pastor Reardon would be honored in our time together. We pray this in the matchless name of the one who deserves all honor, the one before whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. We are obviously taking a detour and a little break from our walk through the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, to look at Philippians chapter 2, next week, Pastor Bigelow will be taking us into God's Word. But this morning, I want to take some time to reflect on Pastor Reardon's ministry uh, among us over these last five years. As many of us know, this is our last Sunday with the Reardon clan. We will have uh, at least one, maybe one and a half empty pews uh, after this Sunday that have been occupied for these last five years by Pastor Reardon and Cindy and, and all of their children. As you know, this they will be this time next week, he will be preaching to Applegate Community Church in Oregon, uh, on the other side of the country, about 3,000 miles away. And so they'll get to enjoy the ministry of the Word that we've enjoyed for so long uh, through him. But we want to take this morning, or I did this morning, to look then at some models of faithfulness in Christ's church. And so we're going to do that out of the book of Philippians and in chapter 2. And the the model, the principal modeled in each of the servants that we'll look at this morning is this, that true service to Christ is driven by a sincere love for Christ and a sincere love for his people. It's this kind of service that we see in Timothy and Epaphroditus and, of course, the Apostle Paul himself, and it's the kind of ministry that we've seen in Pastor Reardon over these last five years that he's been with us. So if you would, read with me out of the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 19 through verse 30, and then we'll look at it more closely. 
beginning in verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient. In your service to me. Look back at verse 19. And we're going to look at two models of faithful service to Christ. The first model is a model of sincerity and service to Christ. And the second is a model of sacrifice and service to Christ. The first is seen in the life of Timothy in verses 19 through 24. Now Paul is writing to the Philippians as you can gather from our reading, to prepare them for Timothy, who's going to be coming to them shortly. Coming to them by on a mission from the Apostle Paul himself. In all likelihood, Paul is sending Timothy to the church at Philippi because he will not be able to come immediately, as we learned earlier in the first part of the book, that he is in prison. He's in prison because of his faithfulness to Christ. He doesn't know what will happen to him. He doesn't know necessarily whether he will live or die. But he has a high degree of confidence that he will be released and would soon be able to come and to serve the faith of the Philippians. He says in verse 125, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. But he doesn't know when this is going to take place, and he's eager to hear about the well-being of the Philippian church, both physically and spiritually. And so he is going to send Timothy, Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, his beloved son as he's called in 2 Timothy 1-2. And in Paul sending Timothy to this church at Philippi, it's really like Paul coming himself. He's sending a part of himself. He's sending one who will be the presence of Paul, as it were, among these saints in the church at Philippi. So look what he says in verse 20. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. No one else of kindred spirit, he says. Now this is an incredibly powerful, powerful commendation of Timothy. The term that's here translated kindred spirit is actually a compound term of two different words. Said together, the term is 
for those of this who will matter to you, is isosukos. Isosukos. And the two words are isos, which refers to one who is equal. As a matter of fact, Paul will use this term speaking of Christ. Back in verse 6, he says, although he existed in the form of God, the idea is that he was equal to God. He did not regard, regard equality with God. So it has the idea of being equal, and sukos, of course, is soul. And to say this word then is to say it has the idea of one who is equal or shares in character and interest and passions in all of the inner qualities one of the other. Now it's possible to take this term in this way, that there's no one, that Paul's saying there's no one of equal quality soul as Timothy who are of my companions that could come. It's possible to take it that way. But the context favors a comparison with the apostle himself. And therefore, it's better to see it this way, that Paul is comparing Timothy's love and Christian character to his own. To his own. In other words, it's like saying that I have no one else like myself but Timothy. But Timothy. We have this kind of relationship with Timothy already displayed in the opening of the letter. He Indeed, he dresses it. He begins with Paul and Timothy, slaves or bondservants, of Christ Jesus. He refers to him often as his son, his son in this faith, his beloved son, and so forth. Now, this is then an incredible commendation. For no one outshines the Apostle Paul in his love for Christ or his love for the church, his love for God's people. Paul stands as a model and a beacon for every redeemed sinner in, in Christ throughout all the ages. The greatest saints in the history of the church could never rise any higher than the Apostle Paul. For the greatest saints of the church would all look to Apostle Paul to set the model of what it means to serve Christ and to live without restraint for His glory and in obedience to Him. Next to Christ, who is perfect humanity, Paul is a picture of one who at the deepest and at every level is totally committed to following Christ. Let's just remind you a little bit of that here in the book of Philippians. He says in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, he says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. In other words, this is just a way of Paul saying that his total life was a sacrifice for the faith and in service to Christ for the faith of his church, and here for the faith of the Philippians. At the end of his life, he would use similar language in 2 Timothy 4, 6, probably just a very short while before he was beheaded by Nero. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So Paul's life was absolutely given for the service of Christ's people. To the service of Christ. As a matter of fact, it reaches down not only to duty or obedience, but down to his very affections. In verse 8 of chapter 1, he says this, Paul describing himself. For God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So committed was he to Christ, so full of the life of Christ in him... 
so full of the love of Christ for his own people that he could say to the church at Philippi that my love for you is Christ's own love for you. And so everything that he did was dedicated or demonstrating the reality of the sincerity of his affection to Christ and for his people. Again, we... We read a little bit after this, but he says in verse 21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So even as he's sitting there in prison, even though he's under guard, even though he is restricted in the freedom of his travel, attached to a Roman soldier, most likely, his main concern here isn't even whether he lives or dies, but how in his life he will be useful to the church at Philippi. Again, he says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, verse 22 of chapter 1, this will mean fruitful labor for me and I do not know which to choose. He says, I'm hard pressed. It's very much better to be with Christ, but I'm going to remain. I'm confident of that because I will be useful to your faith. I'll be useful to your joy and your progress in the faith. And so when Paul uses this term of Timothy, he's saying Timothy is like that. Timothy's like that. Timothy shares those same qualities that I have for you. Timothy is of the same spirit. He's of the same soul. He's of the same sincerity of love that Paul had himself and now affirms to be in Timothy. He uses similar terms, actually, at other places in Philippians. He uses, it's translated differently, but one soul. uh, In uh, chapter 1, verse 27, he uses the same soul. In chapter 2, 2, there it's uh, uh, translated by being of the same mind. But here is something much stronger than that. This is same soul. This is equal to soul. This is one equal to me in every way. So he's essentially saying, all that I am for you, so is Timothy. All of my love for you will be expressed in Timothy's love for you. All of my sincerity of service and care for you, Timothy has, and I'm sending him to you. All of my sacrifice for you, Timothy has the same sincerity of devotion. Timothy was not as gifted as the Apostle Paul. He was not as useful ultimately in the kingdom of God as the Apostle of Paul in the big picture. But he did share Paul's faith. And he did share Paul's love for Christ and Paul's love for the church. And he listed out several things here then that that demonstrate this reality in his life. That demonstrate this reality. Let me give you a few of them. The first is this in verse 20. A sincere love for God's people. A sincere love for God's people. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit or who is equal souled, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now Paul had already identified several in the church, several that the Philippians would have been familiar with, that he says were serving Christ, even preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition. They did not have pure motives. In other words, they were doing it for their own self-interest and for their own gain, a means of self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-glory and ease and so on and so forth. 
And Paul here says, though, that Timothy is separated out from that. Though he has no one else of kindred spirit. Later he'll say they all seek after their own interest. But not Timothy. Not Timothy. And when he says that, that there's no one else or they all, this isn't, this isn't just kind of a general slam on all of Christendom. This isn't, this isn't saying that it's just like an Elijah syndrome. It's just me and no one else, me and Timothy and everybody else has gone bad, but, but here we stand. It's, it's not quite like that. Rather, it's really Paul referring to all of those others that he shared a ministry with who would have been available to go on this same mission that Timothy is going on, but they were unwilling. They were not available because they had their own interest in mind and they did not have Christ's singular interest in mind. He's not saying they weren't genuine Christians. He's saying they were infected with self-interest and ultimately that rendered them useless to God and to his people, in this, in particularly in this circumstance. Calvin made this comment. It's helpful. He says, These persons were so warm in the pursuit of their own interest, but they're unbecomingly cold, were unbecomingly cold in the work of the Lord. It is impossible that the man who is devoted to self should apply himself to the interest of the church. So, in other words, though love for the brethren is a necessary mark of salvation, it is possible to be sincere at one level and yet be polluted at another level and be weakened by fleshly concerns for things of this world or what applies to self-interest, putting personal goals and desires above those that Christ has placed on your life, ministry that Christ has placed on your life. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And this is the heart of true Christianity. The true servant of Christ is one who serves Christ in sincerity of heart and whose sole end is that Christ would be pleased with your ministry. It is to demonstrate a sincere love for the brethren. 1 Peter 1.22 And what does that have to do with our occasion this morning? I could say that, and I think we would all agree, in five years, if there's one thing that's been modeled in the life of Pastor Reardon is a sincere love for the brethren a sincere love for God's people, that he has been genuinely concerned for your welfare, genuinely concerned for your spiritual condition. And I think one thing that's always stood out to me uh, ever since the beginning, not only of knowing Parker, but particularly serving with him in ministry, is the attention to the details of people's lives. Uh, I can remember times of noticing somebody having a flat tire. I would have never noticed a flat tire. And making sure that he was going to go out and make sure this person, they were older, and that they were going to get help that they needed because they may not be able to go out and take care of that on his own. I can remember many examples of that, of knowing when the electricity went out and his home was filled with, with people who were off, the house being offered to, for warmth and water and food regardless of whatever the cost was. There is a sincere love for the people of God that has been the mark of Pastor Reardon's life. No one is perfect, not even Timothy. But the pattern of Timothy's life and the, the pattern of one's life and the pattern of Parker's ministry among us is one who has had a sincere love for the brethren, a genuine concern for your welfare. 
He gives another description of Timothy here. Not only does he have a sincere love for the brethren, but he has a sincere love for Christ. We read it. Let me point that out to you again. He says there at the second part of verse 21, they all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. Not those of Christ Jesus. You know, as you may know, a love for God's people is not really first and foremost about the people themselves. It's first and foremost about a love for Christ. It's first and foremost about a love for Christ. To seek after Christ Jesus encompasses within it a genuine love for God's people. A genuine love for those in whom Christ's spirit dwells. A genuine love for those for whom Christ has died and whom he loves. It's really Christ in someone that gives them a true love for the church. A true love for what God is doing in people's life. Christ is the center of everything. We read it earlier in verse 121 that Paul said, For me to live is Christ. And it was out of that that flowed every other aspect of his ministry. Interestingly, I did a check. He uses the name of Christ 35 times in the epistle of Philippians alone. 35 times. Everything is grounded in the person of Christ. And the overflow of that then is a love for others. A love for those for whom Christ loves. This is a necessary fruit of love for Christ, is love for his people. But at the very center is a love for Jesus and what he has done for us and who he is in his own glory. And so at the center of the heart of God's servant, if he's going to be truly useful, there must be a passionate love for Christ. This alone is going to compel in service. This alone is going to cause one to persevere in difficulties and to put up with difficult people to stand in adversity, and to model a life devoted to him. This cannot be tacked on in the flesh. You cannot have at the base of your desires selfish ambition and be useful to God's people in a true and a real sense. Let me again just give another quote here by Calvin on this. He says, For it must necessarily be that one or the other of two dispositions prevails over us. Either that, overlooking ourselves, we are devoted to Christ and those things that are Christ, or that unduly intent on our own advantage, we serve Christ in a superficial manner. For you must give up your own right if you would discharge your duty. A regard to your own interest must be, not be put in preference to Christ's glory or even placed upon a level with it. And so really the question then is what compels us and what motivates us in ministry and in life? What has the greatest sway over your will? The greatest anchor to your emotions? The greatest motivation to what you pursue in life? For Timothy here... Paul says it was the interest of Christ Jesus that ultimately compelled him in everything that he did in all of his service to Paul and all of his service here to the church at Philippi. And I would want to say Timothy's model has been modeled for us by Pastor Parker. Christ has been the very clear main theme of his life and of his ministry. I can remember uh, before Parker came here when he was in New Hampshire at a church there, genuinely standing firm for the truth of the gospel, genuinely standing unwavering for 
Salvation by grace through faith alone that demonstrates in a person's life through a life of faithfulness. But I can remember in the midst of all of that as he was wrestling around uh, with how to handle it and all the details of it, one of the constant things that he said to me that I remember him saying was he just wants to honor Christ. He just wants to honor Christ. And that's been the theme of his life here. And I have no doubt we'll be in the days of ministry ahead at Applegate. It is a model of a faithful servant who says, My one driving passion in life is to demonstrate faithfulness to my Lord and my Master who has bought me. In whatever circumstances he puts me in, in whatever ministry he calls me to, in whatever sphere of opportunity and influence that he gives me, I want to be faithful to Christ. So it was with Timothy, so it was and is with Pastor Reardon. Let me give a third mark here in Timothy's life. Sincere love for God's people, sincere love for Christ himself, and thirdly, a sincere character proven in the crucible of ministry. A sincere character proven in the crucible of ministry. Look again at verse 22, the first part. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. That's a powerful statement that could be easily overlooked. Timothy's character and Paul's commendations were not simply nice things that they needed to take on his own word, but he says, you know of his proven worth. And he uses the term there that speaks of an experiential knowledge, a real knowledge. You know of it. This isn't, this isn't just a, a cold fact. This is something that you've experienced, you've grasped at some level. You know of his proven worth. Their knowledge was firsthand knowledge. They were aware of his character. They were aware of his service to Christ. They were aware of his proven worth. And that I, the word, therefore, that's translated proven has the idea of being shown to be real after being tested. The idea of testing is included in it. And it is that kind of testing, then, that proves someone's character. As a matter of fact, he's going to use this word in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Let me read this to you, verses 2 through 5. He says this, actually I'll begin in verse 1. He says, therefore, and he's talking about, after he's already explained the wonders of being justified by faith in Christ, believing in him. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, here's our word, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So amazingly here then, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that a believer is to rejoice in their tribulations. And notice what he does. He puts that right side by side with rejoicing in our justification, the grace in which we stand. We exalt in our tribulations. 
And what is the reason that a Christian can exalt in tribulations? Because they have the fruit or the effect of proving our character and the reality of faith. And in doing that, producing hope in the Christian. Trials bring opportunity to expose what is in our hearts. You want to know who you really are? You don't look at how you act when everything's easy. You wait till God strips it all away and brings trials in your life. And then you'll see how grounded you really are in Christ. And how faithful and how real that commitment is. And so trials have a way of exposing that. They stretch us. They break us. They bring us low. They expose the deep motives of our heart. But in the end, when one belongs to Christ, in all of that, it doesn't destroy, but it strengthens. And it provides a means of proving Christian character, a regenerate heart. And so Paul is saying, basically, that Timothy has displayed this kind of proven character. He's been tried in the crucible of ministry. He has been tested in, the, in what has been laid before him. He's been with the Apostle Paul. The Philippians knew of his ministry, and he says he has a proven character. It's a proven character. You know it. You've experienced it. You've seen it lived out in his life. And again, I think that this provides a wonderful picture of what a faithful servant looks like. One who is sincere in his service to Christ. And I think it's a picture of what we have seen demonstrated in Pastor Reardon's life. Parker has had no shortage of trials, as we're well aware of. As a matter of fact, I think that's really been a theme over his life since I first met him in seminary a long time ago. I mean, story after story could be told. I remember of sitting in the dining room table with a rented house. I don't know what number of rented house and a man working on the roof fell through. His whole legs came through the ceiling while they're sitting there eating. A faithful mentor we had in seminary used to always tell him that he's good for his prayer life (laughs) because like Job, he always had something that was needed to be taken before the throne. My very first meeting of Parker actually was because of stomach surgery that he just had. And we took uh, him and Cindy a meal. And that's where our relationship and our friendship began so many years ago. And of course, there have been trials here. But trials, again, bring proven character. And I think one thing that we can say is in that all of them, a love for Christ has shown through and has been proven. A commitment to submit to the lordship of Christ in every area of life when it brings blessing and when it brings trial and when it brings opportunities to need to trust him for new avenues and new ministries in life. He set an example and a mark to be followed in bearing the load that Christ assigns to him with a worshipful heart and a desire to be faithful to the Lord. I think with Paul to Timothy, we can say, you know of his proven character. You know of his proven worth, that he is a faithful servant of Christ. Let's look briefly at a second model. And this is a model of sacrifice in service, a model of sacrifice. And this comes through Epaphroditus, beginning in verse 25. He says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Now, 
Epaphroditus just comes to us here in the book of Philippians. There's really not a great deal known about him. But he is given here this incredible commendation by the Apostle Paul. And the little that we do know is yet still a great testimony of his faithfulness and his sincere love for the gospel and for God's people. And what is obvious is that Epaphroditus was beloved and trusted servant of the church at Philippi, who was sent with a gift to the Apostle Paul to support him in his ministry. Support him in his ministry. He says in verse 18 of chapter 4, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. This was Epaphroditus for the Philippian church. He was the bearer of their gift to the apostle Paul. He was a representative to them of their own love for the apostle. And he came to them with a heart that was utterly committed and sacrificial to whatever God might bring him through in order for him to be faithful to that service, the task on which he was sent. He says in verse 30, he says, He came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Risking his life. Now there's a couple of ways to understand this and how he risked his life. One is, it's possible that Epaphroditus on his trip from Philippi to Rome to see the apostle, which was about an eight-week trip, and it wasn't an easy trip. It's possible that somewhere along the way he got sick, and really it was a sickness of such seriousness and such intensity that many would have turned around and gone back. And said, I'm sorry, I tried, but I just couldn't quite get there. And it's possible that what Epaphroditus did is he, he said, no, I'm not going to turn back. I have this task. I'm determined to get to the Apostle Paul. And if I die, I die, but I'm going to go. And it's possible that in that way he was risking his life. But it also says here what was deficient, that he risked his life By completing what was deficient in their service. And so it's also possible that the mission of Epaphroditus, and I think this is probably closer, wasn't only to bring this gift to the apostle, but it was instead to go and to be with the apostle as a representative of the saints at Philippi to continually serve and meet the needs of Paul while he was imprisoned. While he was imprisoned. In fact, that's... Most likely the reason why Paul is having to write them and commend Epaphroditus to the church at Philippi to say, look, I'm sending him back earlier than expected, not because anything was deficient in his service, not because he failed in any way, but because he had risked his life to the point of death. And because, as he says in verse 26, there's such distress in his own heart, in your heart, because you heard of what he suffered to be faithful to the task on which he was sent. In either case, in either way that it's understood, the point is the same. He placed service to Paul, which was service to Christ, above his own well-being. He was faithful to his task, and he was not ashamed of Christ. He was not ashamed of Paul, who was Christ's prisoner. And so in commending Epaphroditus, Paul gives a few characteristics here that I just want to briefly consider. Briefly consider. First of all, Look at what he calls him. 
Look at what he calls him. In verse 25, he said, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. My brother. To say that is an, is an affectionate term. And it's a confirmation of his faith in Christ. Now, Paul will use that term brother or brethren nine times in the epistle. But this is the only time that it has this marker, my brother, my brother. Here, speaking of an individual, it's an affectionate identification of one who belongs to Christ. The one who Paul is saying, I share with him a common faith. I share with him a common salvation. I share with him in a common ministry. But it's not just the facts of that. This is one who is my brother. One who is a companion. He speaks of deep personal affection. Of one that he shares ministry with. And one has said this. A real mark of Christian maturity. Is the ability to work with others cooperatively under the banner and for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so this was Epaphroditus, Paul's brother, Paul's sharer in the ministry of Christ that had been assigned to him. I think that in many ways it is this reality of sharing not only in the ministry but in the common blessings and privileges of faith and Christ, the reality of having the same Father, the same Spirit, the same salvation, the same Lord, the same end in life that has allowed Parker and I to serve together so well. Parker and I are very different people. We have different personalities. We have different perspectives on life. We many times would view situations differently, coming at it from different perspectives. We have different experiences in life that have shaped us. But we can say that, and I can say that he is my brother. And I think that Parker can say, I am his brother. And it is this bond of family, this spiritual bond of unity that we share in Christ. And that we all share here this morning who know Christ. That keeps those differences from being divisive. That keeps them from being means of us separating But in fact, it is the bond that causes us to work through whatever that we would grow stronger in our unity and a true unity that is bound in the reality of Christ in us and the spirit of Christ in us. And that has that bond, that ability to say, my brother, not in a flippant way, not in a way that's just a when you forget somebody's name or it's just kind of the first thing that comes out, but in a way that is said, no, that is our bond. It is our bond in Christ. It is the bond that we share in our Lord and it is what unites us. And it's what enables us to work through every difference, every disagreement, everything where would normally divide outside of that bond. And so he says, Epaphroditus, my brother... And then he calls him my fellow worker and fellow soldier. And here Paul is really viewing Epaphroditus' ministry in relation to himself. In other words, in relation to Paul. And he calls him a fellow worker. And the basic meaning here is one who works together with someone else. Probably could have figured that out from the meaning, but there it is. It's someone who gives assistance or help. 
Now, Epaphroditus joined Paul in his ministry of the gospel. He wasn't a lazy Christian. He didn't have an idle faith. He says he was one who was a fellow worker. And again, demonstrating the reality of his faith. Faith without works is dead. Somebody who claims Christ but doesn't have evidence of that in their life by working for Christ, it is an empty claim. The faith that embraces Christ for salvation is the faith that yields to Christ in his lordship, that lovingly obeys him, that follows him as Lord, that trusts him with every vicissitude of life and serves him out of gratitude. It's a faith that's tasted heavenly realities, that's tasted the grace of Christ, that has a life that's redirected in goals, in values, and pursuits. And Paul is saying Epaphroditus had that. He is a fellow worker. He's my brother. He's in the family. And he is one who demonstrates that by working for Christ, by being faithful to Christ in whatever way, whatever ministry he's been called to. Again, this is quite a commendation. Paul has used this term several other times throughout his epistles. And this is something then for this to be said of anyone, but, if, but particularly by the Apostle Paul. Again, Paul's life was utterly committed to fulfilling God's apostolic commission. And so to be a fellow worker of Paul was to be a fellow worker of God's. It was to be a fellow worker with Christ. It was to stand with Paul. And Paul would say, this is one who stands with me in the work that God has given us to do. In the ministry that God has called us to. And so he commends Epaphroditus as one whose will, whose priorities, and whose energy was focused on being obedient to God's will for his life. On being obedient to follow Christ in whatever capacity he was called to. Here it was serving alongside Paul. And as we looked at earlier, risking his life. And it's interesting here, that term for risking is a gambling term. It's a gambling term, like when you risk money, that idea, and you throw it on the table, like people do in Las Vegas or casinos and so forth. Here it has this idea. It's the idea that he threw his whole life on the table. He was willing to lose it in order to finish his task, in order to be a worker with Paul in the ministry of the gospel. And so he says he is a fellow worker. And this is the mark of a faithful servant. To be work in the ministry that God has called no matter the cost. One who's willing to sacrifice personal comfort, safety, whatever the Lord may call you to give up. This is the model set before you and me. And it's the life that God commends here through the Apostle Paul. It's the model of service that should mark each saint in Christ. There should be no saint here that's truly a saint at Newtown Bible Church that could not be called and should not be striving to be called a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul, a fellow worker of God's, a fellow worker of Christ. That should be the mark of us all. This is modeled in Epaphroditus and it's been modeled in Pastor Parker. A fellow worker in the ministry the Lord assigns a willingness to work hard, to make sacrifices, to set aside personal comforts to fulfill the work of the ministry. I have many memories of that. I think one that bubbles up to the surface was in the shooting at Sandy Hook. And, of course, we were flooded with emails and phone calls and letters and those kind of things. I generally couldn't make it 
much past the sun going down, but I know Parker would stay up late at night, sometimes till one or two in the morning, responding to people with such a pastoral heart to give a biblical response to each of those who were contacting the church and contacting the ministry of Newtown Bible. There was a sense of the work of the ministry that needed to be fulfilled. I think of the home always being open. Some of you will know who you are, but I think of times at different hours of the night or of the morning or times of the day where there was the need for immediate assistance and who was called and who was there. It was Pastor Reardon. He was doing the work of the ministry. And guess what? It's not always convenient. Pastors don't sit around the phone just wondering what they're going to do with their time till somebody calls and gives them some kind of ministry. It's a matter of like anyone, you have to lay aside what you're doing. You have to stop doing things that are important. You also have a family as a, as a pastor. He has a ministry to his children and to his wife, but how many times that was immediately laid aside to go serve someone in need? A fellow worker. He calls him also here a fellow soldier, Epaphroditus, a fellow soldier. Speaks of one who serves in an arduous task or undergoes severe experiences together with someone else. It's a term of honor to one who has served well in battle. Honor to one who has served well in battle. The Christian ministry is a battle. It's spiritual warfare. The, very, the whole Christian life is spiritual warfare. It's battle against the flesh, our own sinfulness, the principle of sin that still resides even in a believer with a regenerate heart. It's a battle against the world. It's a battle against the devil, who particularly in a Christian minister wants to see them fall and succumb to sin. And so Epaphroditus battled all of these things, all of these things, and yet he proved himself faithful. He proved himself faithful. He was a soldier. He was a soldier not only who engaged in the battle, but he did so with distinction. He did so with distinction of service. He did so in a way that he was worthy of honor. He was worthy of honor. The picture is this. The picture here is of a Roman soldier standing shoulder to shoulder and side by side. Listen to the way this is described by one. James Montgomery Boyce. He described this well. Listen. Shoulder to shoulder fighting accounted for the success of Rome's armies. Prior to the triumph of Rome, men fought mostly as individuals. They often dressed alike, but they did not fight side by side. The Roman armies did, and as a result of the phalanxes, bodies of troops who stand close together, who go out into battle, of the legions were the terror of the ancient world. The soldiers marched abreast, bending, a, making a solid wall of shields. And as they marched, they struck their shields with their spears in unison and sang battle songs. And in such a way, we are to advance in harmony against the spiritual powers arrayed against us. In other words, Paul is saying, this is one who stood shoulder to shoulder with me in ministry. And together we formed a line in our combined ministry efforts that did battle together. We found in this way and when the soldiers stood side by side, a confidence of one you knew was going to be on your right and one who was going to be on your left. 
whose shield would be in part your shield, whose sword would be in unison with your sword and make it stronger than it would be alone, one you served with in battle. So Parker has been this fellow soldier. I know that I was an elder for a couple of years at least, uh, alone, about a year and a half or so, and we prayed for another elder to come. We'll be doing the same, that we pray for God to raise up elders and to bring us elders in the ministry. He's assigned elders to the church. We want to ask the Lord of the church to bring them. But he did bring Parker and how much of a privilege it has been to stand shoulder to shoulder with someone in the ministry at NBC, at Newtown Bible Church. How much it is a a source of strength and blessing to share it with someone who holds the same shield of faith, the same sword of the Spirit, who wears the same belt of truth, the same helmet of salvation, the same feet shod with the gospel of peace. How much it is a privilege to share it with one who you can stand side by side and teach the same truth and address the same attacks in unison and as one. And that's what we've shared and that's what's been a privilege not only for me but to the benefit also of Christ church of you at Newtown Bible. He also then now commends Epaphroditus in relation to the Philippian church. And he says this, and we'll wrap this up. He says this. He says, for me, he is a brother. For me, he is a fellow worker. For me, he is a fellow soldier. But he is also, for you, a messenger and the minister to my need. So to the saints of Philippi, he was a representative. He was one who could be entrusted with their own heart. One who could be entrusted not only with their gift, but to be their representative. So in sending Epaphroditus, essentially the church of Philippi was sending one who would be a portrait of themselves at their best. Paul, we're sending you ourselves. We're sending you one who will be our best representative to meet your needs. We're sending to you Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. He will be the messenger and the minister to your needs. He'll be that messenger. He uses the word apostolos here. You're obviously familiar with that, apostle. The word is somewhat elastic. It clearly identifies the 12, Paul himself, who was commissioned with a unique commission by Christ, a unique giftedness by Christ. But it's also used generally at times, as it is here, to speak of one who is a representative, but a unique one, a special representative, a chosen representative. And here it was, Epaphroditus, and it shows his special relationship to the church. And he calls him a minister. He doesn't use the word here from which we get deacon. He uses another word here, lutragos, lutragos. It's an interesting term. I mention it just for this reason. Some of you might be familiar. That is a term that speaks often of religious service. Of religious service. It's used in the New Testament to speak of rulers who are appointed by God in Romans 13.6. But it also has an idea of a, a priestly overtone. But in this sense, of one who is rendering service on behalf of God. 
One who's rendering service on behalf of God to others. Paul uses it of himself there in verse 17. When he says, if I'm pouring, being poured out, I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice. Here's the term, and service of your faith. It's used of Christ as a high priest in Hebrews 8.12. Even of angels in Hebrews 1.7. Here it has the idea of Epaphroditus rendering service unto God in his service to Paul on behalf of the Philippian church. A service unto God. And the implication seems to be that he was sent again not only to bring a monetary gift, but to be Paul's personal help, his assistant, one who would stay with him as a representative of the Philippian church. And notice the kind of bond then that he had with this church. Look at verse 26. Why is he sending him back? Well, here's one reason. Because he was longing for you. It's a strong word there. Longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. There's really a picture there of this love between the Philippian church and Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus for the Philippian church. They were so grieved and distressed. Why? Out of their love and their concern for other, the other. Because they cared so deeply and so much for each other that it caused distress to think there was suffering of any kind. There was a need that wasn't being met. Because they were separated from one another when they wanted to be serving and helping the other. In this case, in Epaphroditus, sickness A sickness that came out of his faithfulness to his ministry. And so it was hard for them to be apart. It was hard for them to be apart. And so in in one part of this, Paul is sending them back to relieve that distress. To lessen it. So that they could be reunited with one another and be an encouragement to one another. And serve one another. And many here will have similar sadness over the departure of... Of the Reardons to a new ministry. The circumstances are obviously different than those of Epaphroditus. They're different circumstances. But the affection and the care are the same. The affection, the attachment, the love are the same. The sense of separation of one that you care for will be similar. And interestingly there are some parallels here. Even, I think, of Epaphroditus' ministry in sickness and Parker's ministry in sickness. Now, Parker didn't get sick out of service to Christ. But if we flip that around, he was very sick and still served Christ. And we're all well aware of how that commitment to Christ and to you was shown out of all of those years when he was feeling really on death's door uh, almost on a daily basis. Many will recount almost four years ago when Parker was struck with a mysterious illness, I think during a Valentine's Day dinner, of all things. Uh, But struck with a sickness, back and forth with doctors, endless medications, and seemingly unending discovery of new ailments and new things that were said to be wrong. And this just kept going on and on and on with no answers. And yet, through it all, he provided a model of service to Christ. He still preached. He still counseled. He still ministered to the needs of the saints 
at Newtown Bible. His home was still open. And he modeled, I think, something even more than that, and something I've even shared personally with him, is accepting the difficult circumstances that Christ brings into our life with a heart attitude of worship. With a heart attitude of worship. It's not easy. Not in, a, not in a light, flippant, oh, whatever, whatever kind of way. No, in a difficult way, but saying this is what God has assigned and I will still be faithful to Christ. It's a lesson that we can all learn and it's an example that we can all follow. How many times that he came and would preach the word on Sunday morning only to go home and sit in a recliner for days, uh, unable to move. But somehow, by God's grace energized with a unique ability to stand into the pulpit and to faithfully bring God's word to his people because there is a love for Christ and his people. Well, how do we treat them then? How are we to treat them? Look at what he says in verse 29. He says, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. High regard. It's a term of honor that really is more than just honor. It's really a term of honor mixed with genuine affection. It has the idea of affection as well as honor. It's a term used by the centurion of his servant who was sick, a servant whom he held in high regard, high honor. Same term there. He had an affection for the servant. It's not only that he was useful, but the idea is that he had a genuine care for him. He was concerned that he was sick. He was concerned that he was... Close to death. Interestingly, it's a term used of Christ himself in 1 Peter 2, 4 and referred to as a choice and a precious, that's the word, stone, precious in the sight of God. In a reflected sense, the faithful servants of Christ are to be esteemed as precious gifts of Christ to his church, to his church. We are to hold men like Epaphroditus. We're to hold men like the Apostle Paul. Or to hold men like Timothy and all faithful servants like that in high regard. Parker was sent to us by the Lord of the church. And now by that same Lord, he's being sent to others. To Applegate Community Church. But we recognize his service among us. We recognize that he has served Christ well. He has served us well. With integrity. With faithfulness. With sacrifice with personal sacrifice, all to the glory of Christ and out of love for his people. And so we send him away with honor and in high regard and as a beloved servant. And so before we close, this is what I want to do. If I could have Mike White come up who has an envelope and then uh, the rest of the deacons and then Parker, if you would come up and I guess Cindy, you can, if you want to, come up as well. We just want to give a gift and a token of our appreciation. Whoever's here, I guess Tim is out, but 